0: We're going to be in Luke chapter 19 today, Luke chapter 19. Back at the end of the financial crisis in 2008, you remember that the stock market plummeted and, and, and massive, massive drops. almost feels like we're kind of rumbling up on that again. Many people lost you know, enormous sums of money as the stock market collapsed and the, the housing bubble burst. But as there was that upheaval going on in the market, something else began to be exposed. People who had been getting these steady rates of return in in certain funds suddenly weren't getting those returns with the the, the capital drying up and credit drying up certain marketing schemes began to be be exposed as fraudulent we all know the name bernie madoff Uh, bernie madoff was an incredibly successful investor in his own right on wall street Uh, did some amazing things in the 70s the 80s with with computer technology but beginning in the early 90s, he started a Ponzi scheme, right? We know the Ponzi scheme, people pay the money in, you pay the investors back, and you just have to keep money coming in, money going out, and no one is really any the wiser. But as the uh, the housing market and the stock market collapsed, as the, the economy entered into a recession, there was no longer that spare cash to feed into the Ponzi schemes. So there wasn't really the money left to pay off the erstwhile investors, people who thought they were making rates of return, it began to be exposed as an illegitimate fraud. And he finally went to his kids and said, hey, guys, the game's up, game's over, was arrested at the end of 2008, and eventually went to prison for, I think the sentence was like 150 years uh, for what he had done. When it was all said and done, uh, the prosecutors estimated the amount of money that he essentially stole to be in the tens of billions of dollars. Something on the order of $50 billion. That's a, that's a bigger budget than, than many countries in the world have, like their entire you know, budget for the year. Now, just imagine that you were one of Bernie Madoff's victims. You had invested your life savings into his, uh, into his investment funds. You were getting this 12% rate of return. I think, man, this is great, seems all legit. And then all of a sudden you realize all of that money is gone. How would you feel? Feel robbed? You would feel. Betrayed, uh, You would feel very poor when you realize, man, my whole retirement just went down the drain. The character that we're going to meet, I just, I, I lay that groundwork because there's a sense of, of loathing we feel for someone like Bernie Madoff, who would get rich at other people's expenses, taking other people's funds, other people's money, for his own investment, his own well-being. That sense of sort of like, oh man, what a despicable character, that sense of almost revulsion that we feel towards a Bernie Madoff kind of character is the way that people would have felt towards Zacchaeus. And I I say that because we come to Zacchaeus, we all know the story. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. And we we, we were, oh, what a cute story, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a crook, all right? And we're not going to feel the force of the Zacchaeus story unless we get a sense that he's a really, really bad dude who everybody in town hates, And they hate for pretty good reason. He's robbed them. He's stolen from them. He's extorted from them. He's used his power and authority to just extort them in plain daylight. And yet this is a guy that Jesus comes along and forgives and brings into his kingdom. Listen, if Jesus can save and forgive Zacchaeus, he can save and forgive anyone. So let's just read the story beginning in Luke 19, verse 1. And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus which was chief among the publicans, and he was rich. Verse 3, he sought to see Jesus, who he was. And he could not for the press, because of the crowd, because he was little of stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he, that is Jesus, was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down for today. I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he has gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. This concludes the section on kingdom citizenship in Luke's gospel. It comes as the climax of this section where Jesus has been talking about salvation and entering the kingdom of God, being a citizen of God's kingdom. And this is almost like naturalization. Here's someone who's sort of a foreigner to the kingdom who's now brought into the kingdom and is swearing allegiance to the the kingdom of Christ and is made a full and equal citizen, a son of Abraham, even though he doesn't deserve it. Verse 10 is really the summary statement for everything that has come before in this section of Luke's gospel. The son of man, that's Jesus' The enthroned one from Daniel 7, verse 13, who's glorious and majestic, the one who's going to return one day to rule. He says, he's come. He's entered into the world. Why? To seek and to search out and to look for and to save that which was lost. And Zacchaeus is exhibit A of someone who is lost, who Jesus finds. If Jesus can do this for Zacchaeus, he can do it for you and for me. And here's my desire today is that you and me, we know the story of Zacchaeus. Many of you know the gospel. But sometimes we lose sight of how relevant and glorious and amazing the gospel is. So let's jump into this text and read this as if we're we're reading it and studying it for the first time. Maybe heard it in Sunday school. You've sung the song. But let's read this with a sense of wonder that we are supposed to get from this. So let's move through the scenes of this story as Jesus seeks and saves that saves that which was lost the first truth that we must marvel at okay that's what I want us to to marvel at this to be amazed at this to be whoa that's awesome that that Jesus would do that is this Jesus sees sinners he sees them as we start off the story we get this description of Zacchaeus and Jesus coming along and you get the sense Jesus doesn't really meet Zacchaeus until verse 5 But in reality, Jesus sees who Zacchaeus is before he actually comes into physical eyesight. Notice this description. Jesus is entering and passing through Jericho. Now, just a reminder, last week he's coming out of Jericho in between the old and the new Jericho. He meets Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, have mercy on me, thou son of David. Jesus heals Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus sees and he joins. So there's already been this incredible miracle that's taken place. We're just 17 miles from Jerusalem. We're moving inexorably to the cross, to the Passion Week. And as Jesus passes through Jericho, it almost sounds like Jesus is just going to walk through town. He's on his way. It's not really the stopping point. It's not the final destination. As he's in the middle of going through town, he has this encounter with Zacchaeus. Now notice verse 2. And behold, so Luke's drawing our attention to this. That word behold is not just sort of filler to make it sound like the Bible, but uh, look, pay attention, draw your attention to a new character. There was a man named Zacchaeus. He was chief among the publicans and he was rich. He's chief tax collector, which you're like, hey, you know, working for the IRS, respectable-ish kind of job, right? Like it'd be a legitimate career. This is not the way how things were then. Right? The way things were then is there was this tax farming scheme where the, you, you would sort of franchise out the right to collect taxes. And everybody involved would collect more taxes than were legitimate to line their own pockets. And by the way, far more than was legitimate because there's sort of multi, multi-level uh, leveling in this system where ultimately the emperor gets his slice of the pie. So Zacchaeus is the head tax collector. He's like sort of the, the head of this syndicate, the head of this gang of people who are sort of legalized extortion of the Jewish people. He's in Jericho. Now, you, you think of Jericho like we know the story of Joshua in the, uh, in the Old Testament. Jericho by this time was a very prosperous city. It's along the Jordan River, so that, that, that's important. It's right on the border between Judea, the Roman province, province of Judea, and the province of Perea. Any goods that are coming across the border would have taxes charged to them. That's one of the ways that they got taxes. It wasn't income tax like we have today, but taxes on goods and on products that are being moved. So you come through with your donkey and your wagon and you've got some crops that you're you're bringing through on your way to Jerusalem. You'd have to go through Jericho. So to be chief tax collector there in Jericho was a very lucrative gig. So here comes this cart, and you're like, all right, well, we're taxing today. You know, you've got, mm, you got wheat. Tax rate today on wheat is, eh, we're going to say 10%. And mm, we've just upped the tax on donkeys. Oh, your donkey has four legs? Okay, well, we're going to tax each leg of the donkey. And, oh, wagons, Yet yeah, we're ta- and, and it was completely arbitrary. There was, no, there was no sort of checks and balances to prevent this. And if you didn't pay the taxes... Well, I'm just going to turn you over to the Romans as a tax evader. You had no choice but to pay up, but to cough up. So these tax collectors, was, it was organized crime where you would shake people down and you would take money from them. You would squeeze them for all you could to make yourself rich. This term, chief tax collector, appears nowhere else in the Bible. It appears nowhere else in contemporary literature at this time, only here in the Bible He's in charge of all of the tax-collecting operation in the city of Jericho. So when it says in verse 2, and he was rich, don't think that he's rich just because he inherited some money or he's got, like, you know, really good with investment. He's rich because he robs people, all right? He's rich because he's got a Bernie Madoff-style sort of Ponzi scheme, except it's an extortion scheme, that he has ripped off from all of his fellow Jewish people. Now, I can say he's Jewish because of the name Zacchaeus. The name Zacchaeus is Hebrew, a version of a and here's what this name means. This name means innocent or pure. Here's a guy who's anything but innocent or pure. He's a thief. He's a robber. He's in cahoots with the hated Romans. So think World War II, you know, the Nazis take over all of Europe, and there's collaborators. You know, Vichy France. When the war is over, they are hated because why? They collaborated with the enemy. He's a collaborator with the hated Romans. So he's betrayed his nation. He's betrayed his neighbors. He's betrayed his people. He's got this great name. So maybe that suggests he had godly parents. We're going to name this child Zacchaeus, clean or innocent. And he goes off into this life of crime. He's betrayed his family. He's betrayed God's law. He's living in violation of the commandment, thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet. It's plausible that he sent people to the Romans, handed them over for imprisonment, maybe even death. He, he's a really, really bad guy who wrecked a lot of people's lives. Add to that is the fact that he is rich, and we tend to think, well, rich people, riches, you know, sort of morally ambiguous." Look back what Jesus said in, in just a few verses before in Luke 18, verse 24. When Jesus saw that he was sorrowful, he says, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easy for easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus has already said, Riches are a huge impediment to coming to saving faith in my son, because riches make you sort of self sufficient and you don't need God, and you think that your riches are a sign of God's blessing, so why should I seek his forgiveness if I've already got it made? Basically, the deck is stacked against Zacchaeus. Uh, his list of demerits is very, very long, and his list of merits is non-existent. Tax collector, crook, robber, thief, bad person, hanging out with only bad people. And by the way, you always get classed together in the Gospels, prostitutes and tax collectors. It says something about his moral life, suggests something about that. So here we go. We've got a guy who's hardly a candidate for someone who would have any interest in Jesus. We go along now in verse 3. So Jesus sees all that. He knows all this. I think he doesn't need anyone to tell him Zacchaeus' backstory. Remember, Jesus is truly God and truly man. He, he sees, sees the lost. He sees sinners. He sees the, the need. But verse 3, we, we, we see something else about Zacchaeus. And he sought to see Jesus who he was. Now that should sort of strike us as surprising. He's rich. He's got it all made. What does he care about some Jewish rabbi? After all, all the other rabbis had been the ones who had shamed him and kicked him out of the synagogue. Uh, we know from the mission of the Talmud, publicans, the uh, tax collectors couldn't testify in court. They couldn't come to synagogue. They were on the outs. They were the irreligious, the people you stay away from, respectable people. Don't hang out with them. So here's Jesus of Nazareth, this great rabbi. Why would Zacchaeus want anything to do with Jesus? It, it bewilders. It doesn't make any sense. This is not coming from a good heart on Zacchaeus's part. I can guarantee you that. This is the, the spirit of God is doing something in Zacchaeus' heart. I think Zacchaeus was ultimately an empty, lonely, sad little man. We actually see that he's short of stature. He's hated by the Jews. Most likely, he's envied by his cronies. So the tax collectors under him, they don't love him. They want his job, right? they We want what Zacchaeus has. He only got there because he knocked other people out of the way. Here's a man who I think we can very legitimately say was friendless and hated and despised by everyone. Even though he had great wealth, he was impoverished in his soul. Though he had great power, he was ultimately powerless spiritually to remedy his condition. I think Zacchaeus had heard rumors, hey, Palestine's not a big place the size of New Jersey. That's the entire region of Israel. We think the Bible, man, a big area, a little area the size of New Jersey, most of the events in the Bible occur. I think he had heard how up north in Galilee, Jesus had welcomed tax collectors. He had heard that Jesus had, had come and listened to him freely. He might have even heard that one of these guys named Levi was one day collecting tolls at his toll booth, and Jesus of Nazareth... Seeing him in the middle of his crooked occupation says, follow me. Maybe he had heard about that. Maybe he had heard how this one had gotten this reputation, this pejorative reputation as the friend of sinners. And thought, maybe, just maybe, Jesus of Nazareth is different. Maybe he can do something for me. Maybe he can rescue me from this this life that I can't get myself out of. Think about it. If you are in the gang, the one thing you can't do is leave the gang, right? This is not going to be an easy life for him to just turn his back on, I think he was like a lot of people today, and maybe like even you today. On the outside, life's good. You got a well-paying job. You're making one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year. Just bought a new car. It's shiny. It's great. There's a boat out in the back that you just man. It's it's awesome. You enjoy that all the time. Big screen TV in the house. Your 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 home looks like you know better home and gardens. Your 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 life is great on Instagram. The pictures you're smiling, you're happy, you always look great in those pictures. You've got a following, you've got friends, you're in a good neighborhood. Life is treating you good, but there's something missing. There's an emptiness in your soul. There's this sense of guilt that I I try to look good to everyone, but I, I know in my heart that I'm not. I'm trying to make myself happy with stuff and money, and it's just not working. Behind the veneer of everything looking nice, your marriage is actually a a wreck. The debt is stacked up as you're trying to keep up these appearances to look good to everyone. In your personal life, you are morally enslaved to sin. And it's sapping your joy. There's nothing you can do to extricate yourself from it. You're actually a rebel against God, even though you have a good, moral, sort of conservative-looking life. I think our city is full of people who have... Full schedule, but an empty heart. So here's Zacchaeus. Because of this, something's going on in his heart. He wants to see Jesus. But notice verse 3. It says he wanted to see Jesus, who he was. I think this is more than just curiosity. Commentators, some say it's curiosity, some say it's more. I think just that phrase, who he was. He wants to see who is this Jesus of Nazareth? Is he really as good as everyone says? Could it be that he offers hope to people like me? But he's got a problem, verse 4, uh, or verse 3 says he, w- he couldn't see. There's a big crowd. Think about what's just happened. More than likely, in the weeks just before, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Okay, that's going to get a crowd. If you're raising the dead, people, people are thronging Jesus. This is an incredible miracle. He just opened the eyes of a blind man. There's a huge crowd. It's Passover time. Just a, 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 a the, the, the word in the King James There's a press. There's a crowd. You can't, he can't get to Jesus. And on top of that, he's just sort of seeing the back of people's shoulders because he's, he's a short little guy. So he can't get up there. He's trying to see what, what's going on over big crowd in front of him. And it's like, this is not going to do. So what does he do? Verse 4. Look at verse 4. And he ran before. So here comes the crowd with Jesus and all the people. And so he takes off running, gets ahead of the crowd, and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. Now, when you hear sycamore tree, don't think of, like, sycamore tree as, as we may see sometimes. But this is a sycamore fig tree. Uh, so we've got this beautiful oak tree down here by the, uh, by the shed. And you know how our oak trees are, how the branches will kind of come down? These sycamore fig trees that they have in, in Palestine have branches that are low, which make great for climbing, especially if you're a short guy. So he's found a tree that is easy to get into, and he scrambles up into a sort of his leafy perch, and he waits for Jesus to come. I think it's sort of getting the best of both worlds. Nobody will see me up here. I've got too much respect to be seen actually caring about religious things. Got questions, but don't want anyone to know that I'm showing any weakness here, right? Uh, while at the same time, I can get a, a vantage point of Jesus. So I can hide, but I can see Jesus. Isn't that true of all of us? We, in our sin, we want to hide. That's an impulse that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. They hear the voice of God coming, and Adam and Eve run and hide in the shrubbery. They, they get the fig leaves. We want to hide our sins. We want to hide our flaws. We want to hide our shortcomings. We carefully curate our image. We skillfully explain away our failures. But what if there is a seeking Savior who already sees? He already knows all the things that you cover and you're trying to make look good in your life. He already sees that. He already knows that. You're not going to hide anything from him. He's the judge, and you are going to give an account to him one day. What if? And what if that same Savior is orchestrating a meeting that you didn't know was on the schedule for today? What if he's weaving together seemingly random threads in our lives to bring us to a point where we're going to be confronted with Jesus? Think about all the little things he does in the story. He uses Zacchaeus emptiness of soul. He uses a sycamore tree. He uses a guy who's short and the fact that he's short to put him in that tree so that he can meet him right at that moment. None of those... Listen, you might be the most manipulative person, controlling person in the world. You can't make that happen. This is being orchestrated by the great composer, by God himself? What if God is weaving together the seemingly random threads of your lives into a tapestry of divine grace? What if he's using, even for you as a Christian, using heartache and tragedy to bring you closer and closer to Jesus? We believe in the sovereignty of God, that stuff is not just happening randomly. Rather, it is happening under the control and the orchestration and the direction of an infinitely wise God who's doing 10,000 things at any given instant that we are not even beginning to be aware of. So here's Zacchaeus. Yeah, he's seeking Jesus, but we'll find out later Jesus is really seeking him. But listen, Zacchaeus, it is impossible for Zacchaeus to save himself. He's got a load of sin that he can't atone for. Added to that, he's rich. Camels can't pass through the eyes of needles. It is impossible, and rich sinners cannot enter heaven. Blind people can't see, dead people can't live, unless there is a God who does miracles. So let's move on to this next glorious truth. Jesus sees sinners. So you don't need to hide anything from Him. He sees it, he knows it, and he's coming after us. And we see now in verses 5 and 6 that Jesus seeks sinners. He doesn't just see, but he seeks. This is not just Jesus sort of standing on the outskirts of town. Notice it. he's not just sort of Hey, I'm over here, Zacchaeus, if you want to come to me. No, Jesus comes after Zacchaeus. So we see him calling out to him and coming to him in verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, this is deliberate. This is not just I happen to be going by. No, Jesus comes to the place. He he maps out that path through town. He looked up and saw him. Now, how did he know Zacchaeus was in the tree? Because I I envision Zacchaeus as sort of well-camouflaged. He knows he's there. (laughs) He looked up into the tree. And saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down for today. I must abide at thy house. There is a personal call here. Now we see Jesus in the Gospels giving a general call Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you want to come, you come to me. We get it expressed, whosoever will may come, the, the general, free, glorious offer of the Gospel. But there is also a personal call, that point in your life. When it is Zacchaeus, you come down. Sam Sinclair, you come to faith. Where he lovingly woos and brings us to that point. If you've been saved, you look back on the point of your conversion and you've experienced that where you're like, I can't explain it, but he brought me to this place of seeing him and believing in him and trusting him. It's a, it's a personal call, Zacchaeus. Now, how did he know? Like, maybe, okay, maybe Jesus had heard the rumor mill. There's a really bad dude in town. His name's Zacchaeus. He's He's short stay away from him, he's conniving, he'll, he'll rob you from your money, just you see him run. Maybe he knew that. But I think this is more in terms of what we see in John chapter 1. Remember Nathaniel, And Jesus goes up to Nathaniel. he's calling him to be his disciples, he says, Nathaniel, I saw you before when you were sitting under the fig tree. And Nathaniel's like, you're the Messiah of Israel because how did you know that, My number one, my name and where I was sitting and what I was doing? You knew all that before? This is Jesus in his... Divinity, knowing this man's name even when it has not been told to him. To Jesus, Zacchaeus is not just chief tax collector. He's not just crook. He's not just criminal. He's a person with a name. He's a person who matters. He's someone with an eternal soul. He's someone who's going to spend eternity somewhere, someone who is made in the image of God, and Jesus sees him. Jesus seeks him. Zacchaeus. The gospel's call to sinners is personal and individual. Now, listen. You see, I, I've gone to church my whole life, and in a sort of generic sense, I have, I, yeah, I believe. But there is an eternity of difference between believing the facts of, like, yep, Jesus is God's son. Yep, Jesus died for sinners. Yep, I sort of believe, and, and I've always, and there's a difference between that and trusting. There's a difference between well, you know, my family, we have always sort of trusted in Jesus, or our church family, we think this, or we just sort of broadly Christian culture, and saying, me, Sam Sinclair, I'm putting my reliance and my trust individually in Jesus and Jesus alone to save me. Listen, the difference between heaven and hell is the difference between just sort of that head knowledge of I believe that and that personal faith, that individual faith that I trust in. For Zacchaeus, that's the point Jesus is bringing him to. It's not just, hey, all y'all, you know, you, you need to believe in me, but as Zacchaeus, you come down, you come to me, you personally. And maybe today you're here and you're like, okay, I've heard the gospel, I've understood it, I sort of agree with it, but I've never taken the step to personally put my trust entirely and only in Jesus. The Bible calls us to that. Enter into the straight gate, you as an individual. It's a turnstile, one person at a time. You don't come in as a group. It's not like whole households just, well, mom and dad get saved so all the kids are saved. You as an individual, trusting in Jesus. You come to Jesus as an individual as God's spirit draws you. So there's this personal call, but notice in the second part of verse 5, Jesus isn't making a request. He's not saying, Zacchaeus, oh, I beg you. No, he's making a command. Make haste, come down, for today I must stay at thy house. This is an imperative. This is not just a... A nice invitation i've heard the saying before jesus is a gentleman he'll he'll never he'll never just sort of override your, your your preferences and your will no jesus is lord and he's doing something that is profoundly inhospitable and ungentlemanly here it is inviting himself over to this guy's house really bad form really bad manners uh yeah, this is this is really bad etiquette to say I'm, I'm having dinner at your house guess what jesus owns the house Right, It's his because he's king and he's Lord of all. So he's not standing outside pretty pleased, I beg you. No, he's coming and saying, I'm Lord of the universe. I'm staying at your house today, Zacchaeus. You're mine. I'm bringing you to faith in my name. Think about uh, Saul of Tarsus. He wanted nothing to do with, with Jesus. Meets him on the, on the road to Damascus, is brought to faith in Jesus. He set out on that road wanting nothing to do with Jesus, and he came back saying, he's Lord and I love him and I'll lay my life down for him. I love the uh, the story of C.S. Lewis, he recounts in Surprised by Joy. Uh, he, it's basically his testimony. And he talks about when he came to finally believe in God, he says, I was sitting there as the most reluctant convert in all of England. He's so got to picture me dejected, sitting there like, this is not what I set out for. This is not what I wanted. And then he makes a statement when he, when he finally came to faith in Jesus. He says, I went out on a car, car ride. I left on the car ride not believing in the deity of Jesus, and I came back believing in the deity of Jesus in His power, by His grace, God brought that man to saving faith. Does the same thing, same thing for Zacchaeus. I must stay at your house. This must is not just a, my preference, but this is Jesus saying. There's divine necessity. God has a plan that He's working it out, working out. And guess what, Zacchaeus, it includes you and it includes your house. I'm going to stay there tonight. Notice something else in verse five. For today, today I must stay in your house. Today. Now, that word today, we're thinking, oh, it's just a time frame. But this is sort of freighted with theological weight in Luke's gospel. For unto you is born today in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. It's a word to say that all of the longings of the Old Testament, those promises that God made that there would be a king and a kingdom and a Savior and a Messiah have been fulfilled. Today, salvation has come to your house. Today, I must stay with you. The fulfillment, the immediacy. Listen, salvation is not this process that, well, try really hard and hopefully you make it in the end. Hopefully you're sincere enough and good enough and well-intentioned enough. No, it, it, it occurs in an instant when we believe in Jesus Christ, we are justified and we stand complete in him. Now, yes, we are sanctified and we grow. And yes, God does a great work in our hearts, oftentimes leading us up to that point. But I love the hymn, Amazing Grace. I once was lost. But now I'm found, there's a a point, there's a change where we go from darkness to light, when we go from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God's dear son. This divine command today, in Luke 4.21, Jesus preaches his first synagogue sermon, and he reads that passage that Brian read earlier, he reads Isaiah 61, and he says this, today the saying is fulfilled in your ears. So we get this The links of this chain coming through Luke's gospel. Unto you born this day, today, in the city of David, a Savior which is Christ the Lord. Today is fulfillment. Today I must stay in your house. Today salvation has come to you. The fulfillment of the promises of God. Now notice what happens in verse 6. This shows us just the power of this personal call of the gospel. So Jesus says, make haste, hurry up, get down out of the tree. By the way, think about how ridiculous yeah. Zacchaeus must have looked this little short guy up in the tree, and the branches are sort of swaying, and the leaves are rustling. Uh, here, here he is in a place where his dignity is out the window, right? Like you're the most important guy in town, and now you're sitting up in a tree. Really, like this is kind of embarrassing. Now you're having a conversation with Jesus. You ever have an awkward conversation with someone? This kind of it, it would be really awkward. Some dude up in a tree, and you're talking. It, it just, it's just weird. And Jesus says, Come down from the tree, come out of hiding. Today I'm going to stay at your house. And there is an eager response in verse 6. So Jesus said, Make haste. Notice verse 6. And he made haste. Jesus had come down, and he came down. And Jesus, Jesus said, I have to stay at your house. And it says, And he received him joyfully. Zacchaeus has been overwhelmed by the grace of God. In this instant, the Spirit of God did something in Zacchaeus' heart. It was like he hit the light switch. And he realized, This. Great Rabbi, that I—I I wanted just to see. He's—he's he's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the fulfillment of all the longings of the Old Testament and the longings of my heart. And in that instant, Zacchaeus put his trust in in Jesus. Now he didn't understand everything. There's a lot that he wouldn't get, but he was converted in that instant by the power and the grace of Jesus. Throughout his life, money had been everything. Right? Just more money. Doesn't matter who I run over. Now, what is he rejoicing in? He's rejoicing that Jesus is going to come stay at his house. There's been a fundamental change in his heart. Used to be that sin was what gave him joy. Now it is Jesus that gives him joy. That's one of the signs that you have come over to, 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 to new life, is what brings you joy changes. Now, yeah, you're going to struggle with sin, and sin will still have we will be dealing with the, this body of sin until we go home to be with Christ. But the ultimate joy and treasure of your heart fundamentally changes. What's interesting, at first glance, it looks like Zacchaeus has sought Jesus and brought Jesus home. When in reality, Jesus has found Zacchaeus and brought him home. So yeah, it says in verse 3, Zacchaeus was seeking to see Jesus, but really it's Jesus all along who's seeking him. Yeah, Jesus is going to come to Zacchaeus' home, but in reality, Jesus will bring Zacchaeus to his home. How awesome is that? What a great word is home, right? To, to have a place and to have a belonging and a table and a roof and a family. And here's the guy who everybody hated, who was on the Alps, who's now got a seat at the table with King Jesus. Now, it brings us to this final scene where the story comes to sort of the, the, this mountain peak of, of glory. We see that Jesus saves sinners. So he sees, he seeks, and he saves and when they saw it, so now here, here comes Jesus with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is taking Jesus into his house. They're going to onto his home. There's a big crowd of people who are watching all of this, and they're not happy. Here's Zacchaeus, who is giddy with gladness. He's smiling, he's laughing, but now an unhappy murmur begins to spread through the crowd. Whispers and murmurs. This word murmuring is only used one other place in this form, and it's in Luke 15, too, when Jesus is welcoming publicans and the Pharisees are murmuring they're grumbling they're complaining about them. they're a guest, and try to just get into their shoes for a second Jesus do you really know who this is this is the head of the Jericho gang of thieves right this is the chief tax collector Jesus this guy put me out of business because he, ch- he, he charged unjust taxes he took my mule and I wasn't able to plow my field and now I'm destitute People's lives had been wrecked by this guy. And Jesus, you're going to go hang out with him? They had this understanding that if you went and fraternized with sinners, you were culpable of their sin. Guilt by association, tarred with the same brush. Everyone in that town, no doubt, had stories of Zacchaeus' criminal enterprise. He'd gotten rich at their expense. And now to add insult to injury, Jesus seems to be just completely ignoring his sin and just forgiving his sin. And going home to have dinner with him. Jesus, don't you know that that meal that you were eating was paid for by money that was stolen? Don't you you know? They're questioning Jesus' holiness. They're questioning Jesus' knowledge. They're questioning Jesus' discernment. And he has the audacity to have dinner with a criminal. You're condoning sin by eating this meal in their mind. You know, Jesus was undeterred. He's not like, oh, wow, I didn't know who this was. I can't hang out with him. Thanks, guys. This is bad for the reputation. I separate from this, and everyone should separate from the person who separated from him. Like we, we want nothing to do with We need to come out from among them and be ye separate, which, by the way, is a biblical teaching. But this is not how it gets applied. Jesus is undeterred. What he's going to say in verse 10 is, this is why I came. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. If I don't go... And show hospitality and love to sinners, I will never win them. Jesus knows this is his mission. By Christ's grace, Zacchaeus has granted the immense honor of playing host to the Son of God. And for the first time, he's tasted of divine grace. For the first time, he has tasted of divine acceptance. And he's brought to believe and love in this Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus is undeterred. And this sort of reprises something we saw earlier in Luke's gospel. Back up with me to Luke chapter 5. The other time that Jesus had saved a tax collector, Luke chapter 5, something similar happened. Luke chapter 5, verse 27, there's this guy named Levi sitting at the, the toll booth. And Jesus said unto him, follow me. And he left all, rose up, and followed him. So 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 Levi, also known as Matthew, was one of these crooked tax collectors. He follows Jesus. And Levi made him a great feast in his own house, a big feast, big banquet. And there was a great company of publicans and others that sat down with him. So these are like the worst of the worst in, in Galilee. Jesus is hanging out with all the crooks, all the criminals. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? You're fellowshipping with them. You're, 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 you're enjoying a meal with them. You're, you're showing companionship to them. And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So people who are well don't need doctors. Think about how absurd it would be if you come into the doctor's office, you've got like a bad, a bad case of the flu. And the doctor is like, I can't see you today. You're like, why? You've got the flu. I'm like, I don't, I don't do that. I don't, I don't do s- sick people. I only, I only treat people who are who are well. You'd be like, well, what's the point of you being a doctor if you don't help people who are sick? What's the point of Jesus being a savior if He doesn't save those who are sinners? Well, you've got to guard this precious truth that Jesus loved sinners and Jesus ate with sinners. But let's not turn that into Jesus got drunk and threw wild parties and like sinned with sinners. He didn't do that. He's sinless. He is perfect. He is holy. He didn't just hang out with sinners because he was like, man, they're they're, they're tons of fun. He spent time with them so that he could bring healing to them, so he could bring salvation to them. So Jesus is the friend of sinners, and we see that here. We see him being unashamedly the friend of sinners. Jesus never... Never called sinners to wallow in their sin but to repent of it. But he did have contact. He did have relationships. He did have friendships. The scripture does not simply say that Jesus was friendly towards sinners. That like, hey, how are you doing? I'm going to be nice and polite and then just get out of there as quickly as I can. He was the friend of sinners. You know, there's a difference between being friendly and being a friend. You can be friendly with a lot of people but not actually be friends with them. Jesus was not merely friendly towards them, polite towards them, If a sinner comes by, I'll make sure that I'm not nasty to him. Friend of sinners means he built relationships and had meals with and met them where they were at. That's stunning, right? He was a friend of sinners by spending time with sinners. And by the way, not just like, oh, we're all sinners, but like the worst people in society. Now, just think in your mind, who would be the people in society today that you would be like, I wouldn't really want to be seen with them because people might get the sort of the wrong idea. That's who Jesus would have been spending time with. Jesus would, if he were here today, would have been reaching out to and building friendships with the people in town who are pushing the drugs on the streets. So he would have been like, they're the ones that I want to reach. He would have been the ones finding the depressed, confused, trans- trans- transgender teenager and saying, I'm going to love on that individual who doesn't even know what, what gender they are and I'm going to give them hope and point them to Jesus. He would have been the one saying, that person who is a sex offender, i no, never going to condone their sin. I'm going to go reach them with the gospel and call them to repent. Okay, these are the people that you know, we throw these things out that we'd be like, oh, I don't know how to be comfortable with. Jesus is saying, I am the friend of sinners and I'm even going to go have dinner. That's how bad Zacchaeus was. He would have been the Bernie Madoff of Jericho who had robbed everyone. Now, here's the danger. Sometimes in our self-righteous quest for personal holiness, we isolate ourselves from the very people that Jesus loved to reach. So I don't want to be tarnished. I don't want to be, I don't want to be seen with... And listen, I get it, right? We are like, if I feel like I'm being influenced, like let's say you have a history where you have struggled with drinking, probably don't go to the bars to try to win people to Jesus. Probably not a good idea. But don't be so pious and high-minded and... I'm a separate one that you can only have friends with other Christians. Think about your friend circle. Who in your friend circle is someone who believes differently than you? So I only have friends with Christians. I only do business with Christians. I only hang out with other Christians. I I have a Christian bowling league, a Christian soccer league. I have Christians who I work with, and only Christians, Christians, and we live in this sort of subculture. We are not being salt and light. That's, That's isolating ourselves from sinners. Jesus never did that. He went to Jericho on purpose and went and stayed the night with Zacchaeus and won him to himself. If you are afraid of associating with sinners, befriending sinners, eating with sinners, loving sinners, having sinners over to your home, you have joined the grumbling crowd who are wagging the finger in the face of Jesus rather than the side of Jesus. Now notice what happens here in the story. Why are they mad at Jesus? is because they really hate Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, after all, has done a bunch of horrible things to, to him. Now, since Jesus has stood in and welcomed Zacchaeus, they just transfer that hatred that they had for Zacchaeus and put it on who? On Jesus. So in a sense, this is this is awesome. I love this. Jesus is taking the shame and the hatred and the guilt that Zacchaeus deserves, and he's taking it on to himself. That, that's the gospel. Jesus takes... My shame, my guilt, my sin, my penalty, and he absorbs it on himself. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the perfect son of God, the iniquity of us all. He takes the punishment that we deserve on himself. He takes the shame that my sin, listen, sin is shameful. It's a tragedy in our society that we've tried to take the shame out of sin and like live it loud and proud there, there is, why is that the case? Why is there such a push to try to sort of normalize sin? It's because we know it is shameful. And Jesus is saying, yes, it is shameful, and I take that shame on myself to the cross for all who believe in me. That is the heart of the gospel, beloved, that Jesus absorbs the sin, the guilt, the shame of rebellious sinners unto himself, which means this. We don't have to pretend that it doesn't exist. We can confess it freely and say, yeah, Jesus took that shame. Jesus took that guilt. I say that because there are Many, many Christians were going through the Christian life with just sort of low guilt, shame all the time. Like, Man, if anybody knew what I actually did. Years ago, I had, I had an abortion, or I, I've struggled with sins that people knew they would ah they would be horrified. What if Jesus not only took the penalty of that sin, but has also taken the shame of it, to where you don't have to be living, if, if that sin's under the blood, you don't have to walk around with like a, oh, I've done this horrible, horrible thing, and no, it's under the blood, and let's give us grace, beloved, to be, to be transparent with each other. None of us have it together. All of us have things that we are ashamed of, that we have done that are wrong. It's been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Jesus takes that shame. And Jesus then transforms him. I love the, the hymn, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. We come to Jesus just as we are. But if you truly come to Jesus just as you are, you will not stay that way. So look at verse 8. Zacchaeus stood. So here he is maybe at dinner that night or maybe he is out in front of his house. Zacchaeus stands up for everyone to see, for everyone to hear, and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. Zacchaeus is repentant. You see, saving faith is repentant. Saving faith has a change of heart towards sin. And here it is expressed in his commitments and his actions. Here's the proof. Here's the evidence that Zacchaeus has been profoundly changed by his encounter with Jesus. He has a new Lord, a new master. His master before this had been himself. Do whatever I want to make me happy. Now he's saying, Lord, master, Krios. You call the shots. You're the Lord. You're the master. You're the authority in my life. And he's willing to publicly identify with Jesus. By the way, that's what baptism is. Baptism is a public profession of saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. I've died to my sin. I have new life, and I'm following him. And I'm going to tell it to the world. I'm going to identify with Jesus and his people fully and publicly. We identify with Jesus when we share our testimony. We identify with Jesus when we speak the gospel. We identify with Jesus when we stand with him, even when the culture is standing against him. Zacchaeus has a new master, but he has also a new direction in his life, a new, a new way of living. He says, half of my possessions I'm giving to the poor. Now, he's not saying, I'm actually a really good guy. I've always just been giving away my money to the poor. I'm just a misunderstood... No, he's saying, from this point on, I'm giving away half of my possessions. Notice it doesn't say half of my income, but half of what he probably... You know, of what he owned, maybe what was legitimately owned. Giving half of that away. Then additionally people I've extorted, I'm going to repay four times over. Okay, Zacchaeus basically did what the rich young ruler would not. What the rich young ruler, Jesus says, you need to give up everything to sell, give to the poor. The rich young ruler says, no, I love my stuff too much. Zacchaeus just gave everything away. Right? There's not going to be anything left over for Zacchaeus by the time he gives half of his possessions away and then pays back all the money he extorted plus all of the, you know, the four times over on the extorted funds. He's going to be, from this point on, devoid of any money. His, 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 he, this shows that he no longer has a heart of greed. He no longer has a heart that wants to steal. He's got a new heart. He's got a new heart. He's got a new direction. Now, here's what's interesting. In Leviticus 6 and Numbers 6, Old Testament law says you steal something from someone, some property money. You pay it back with a fifth, right, 20%. So you steal $100 from someone, you're going to pay them back uh, and that'll sort of settle that debt. Zacchaeus isn't going to just settle with the mere letter of the law. He's like, I'm going to go four times over. Now, there was a law in in Exodus that if you stole cattle, you restored fourfold. That's like the worst kind of crime in the ancient world, right? Stealing someone's, that's their means of livelihood. He's like, I'm taking the most serious penalty. What does that tell us? It tells us that Zacchaeus is not looking at his sin as, well, it's not really a big deal. Everybody does this. It's just the way things are. He's saying, well, this sin is so serious I'm turning my back completely on this. I'm not just going to try to control it. I'm going to kill this sin. He's bringing forth fruits worthy of repentance. And notice this comes not before Jesus' acceptance, but after. This is not, I'm going to do this, then Jesus is like, oh, well, if you really mean it, then I'll come stay at your house. No, this is coming out of it as a result of the love and the grace of Jesus. He's not doing this to earn Jesus' favor, but because he is grateful for his favor. He's had an encounter with Jesus, and Jesus is now the greatest treasure of his heart, more than anything he could ever have. More than the power he had as chief tax collector, more than the wealth he had as someone who could take anything that he wanted in town. He has found the pearl of great price, and he has sold the field, sold all to buy the field. So, verse 9, Jesus makes this amazing pronouncement, which Yes, it's for Zacchaeus. It's hard to give him assurance, but also for the crowd. It says, today salvation has come to this household. By the way, that suggests that Zacchaeus's family also followed Jesus. They're just so blown away by his conversion. When, when dad is faithfully following Jesus, it's very likely that the kids will also follow Jesus. It's very true. Statistics bear it out. When it's just mom who's following Jesus, kids are very, very unlikely But when dad is going to say, we're going to go to church and we're going to make this a priority, we're going to get into the word, we're going to make this a priority, I'm going to live the gospel and make it a priority, kids will want to follow. Salvation has come to this house, to this family. Why? For as much as he also was a son of Abraham. Now that's more than just saying, well, he's a Jew, so obviously he's saved. This is to say, like Abraham believed in God, Zacchaeus believed in God and it was counted to him for righteousness. He is a spiritual descendant of Abraham. And it's not because of ethnicity, but it's because of grace. And it's because ultimately, notice verse 10, it of that word for. Salvation has come. Why? Because Zacchaeus is a great guy. No, 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 no. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why salvation has come. That's why Zacchaeus has been delivered from his sin and has eternal life with God. What a glorious truth. Okay, does that, does that do anything in your heart? I think we can just sit here I and mean, be pastor's preaching the gospel. This ought to like excite us to the point that we are, like Zacchaeus, jumping out of that tree with joy. That we're coming to God in worship with joy and with enthusiasm. I, I don't think Zacchaeus was just like, well, let me very respectfully sort of, no, I think he leapt out of that tree. I think he became a lifelong follower of Jesus. I think he joined him in blind Bartimaeus. <laughs> Like, here they are. What what a motley crew Jesus has. His disciples, now there's Bartimaeus, now there's Zacchaeus following Jesus. Church tradition, which you take with a grain of salt because it's tradition, not scripture, says that Zacchaeus went on to become a pastor at the church in Caesarea. Here's a guy who lived for the rest of his days because Jesus had fundamentally transformed him. If Jesus can save Zacchaeus, he can save even the most self-righteous person in this room. If he can save Zacchaeus, he can save the most criminal person in this room. Our only hope is, is Jesus. So how do we respond? Let me just give you some concluding words of response here. We need to respond with haste. Just hurry down. This is not a, well, I me just go home and think about it. There, there, there's an urgency to the gospel call. If you're not a believer in Jesus today, man, today settle that. I want to be in the back of the room after the communion service. Come talk to me to be like, all right, I've I've been playing games of this too long, and I've just been kind of going through the motions. I'm ready to have salvation come to my life today. Respond with with, with haste. Respond with joy. If you're a believer in Jesus, respond with joy. Jesus has saved you and has welcomed you and has brought you into his family. We ought to be the most joyful, glad people on the planet. We ought not be in the of griping people being like, oh, i associate with a sinner. No, we ought to have this contagious joy that we want. We're inviting people into our homes and into our lives. Respond with repentance. Following Jesus means following him in repentance, taking sin seriously. Jesus was always a friend of sinners, but never a friend of sin. He came to call sinners to repentance. Fourth, respond with gratitude. We come to the Lord's table here that we're celebrating communion. We do this once a month because we think it's important for us to pause and to say thank you to Jesus for dying on the cross for us. Well, I mean, that will be a normal part of our lives. But here corporately as a people of God to respond with gratitude, to be, I once was lost, but now I am found. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Come to the table with gratitude. Man, I'm thankful for what Jesus, that he has saved me. Now, your gratitude will be directly proportional to the sense of lostness that you have. If you were like, yeah, I wasn't really lost. I just sort of misplaced my way. Like, you won't feel this overwhelming sense of gratitude. But if you're like, I was lost and I didn't know that I was lost. And it was really, really bad. And Jesus came and brought the helicopter in and he rescued me. And I would have been dead and I would have no hope without him. Then the gratitude will be immense. Respond with remembrance. So we come to the table. We're remembering the one who came to seek and to save that which was lost. Which is all of us. As we say, like I got to be a friend of sinners, as if that's this other. Uh, no, that's me. That's all of us. And Jesus has welcomed us, not just to come and be like, well, you can kind of wait out in the in the lobby of the restaurant. He says, no, come pull up a seat at my table. We've got this this table in front of us. It's a wooden table, not a stone altar, because this is not a a sacrifice. We're not re-sacrificing Jesus and. This is somehow becoming the body and blood of Jesus. It's a wooden table to remind us that what we're about to partake of is a family meal. It's like coming to grandma's house at Thanksgiving and it's joyful, you're there with the family. This is a family meal that we sit around and we feast on the promises of Christ. No, not literally feasting on Jesus, but the, 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 the bread represents the body of Jesus that was broken. The cup represents his blood that was just dumped out so that we could be forgiven and brought into his family. And we're coming as brothers and sisters to sit around the table with Jesus sitting at the head. What we're doing is a little foretaste of heaven, because one day there's going to be a great marriage supper of the Lamb. Where hey, I'm spending the night with you, Zacchaeus. No, it's not just one night. It's, it's for eternity where there will be no night. Forever feasting with Jesus at the banquet of heaven. This is a looking forward to that day. Now, if this is a family meal, this is only for the family. And now, what does it mean to be a family? It doesn't just mean like, well, you ought to be part of Cloverleaf. No, are you part of the family of God? This is for those who have had the kind of encounter with Jesus that we just read about. The personal Zacchaeus, Sam, individual, come to me in faith, where you've responded to Jesus in faith, and you have publicly identified with him like Zacchaeus did. You followed Jesus in baptism. Listen, if that's you, we invite you to join us. You're part of the family. You don't have to be a member of Cloverleaf Baptist Church to be part of the family of God. But I will add this. The book of 1 Corinthians says that because it's a family meal, it is absurd to come to the table while you're fighting with your brothers and sisters. If there's some sin dividing you from another Christian, from another individual, you're not coming in a place where you're ready to have dinner with the king. And so Paul says, examine yourself. Is there anything between me and the king Is there anything between me and my brothers and sisters in Christ? Let's settle that before we come to the table. So let's just bow together. It's a time for us to search our hearts, to say thank you, to pray. We're just going to have silence as we we search our hearts, as we confess sin. And then we're going to come together to sing the communion hymn in just a minute.